0: welcome to the third episode of Transmissions from Scarif, a Star Wars podcast created to bring you news, reviews, speculation, and more from all aspects of the galaxy. From comics to cartoons, I'll be giving you everything you need to know about this complex, tied-together universe we call Star Wars. I'm your host, Kyle Spawn, and on this month's episode, I'll be covering some Han Solo standalone news, new toy announcements that were made recently, a review of Darth Maul No. 1, New Battlefront 2 information, The Last Jedi being plural, reviews of the two Rebels episodes we got this month, Legacy of Mandalore and Through Imperial Eyes, and finally, we'll wrap it up with some Art of Rogue One review and discussion. Tell that to Candy Club! On January 30th, director of the Han Solo film Chris Miller announced the first day of filming by posting a photo on social media, revealing the film's working title to be Red Cup. This title is a reference to the most prominent Red Cup company of them all, Solo. So, the title doesn't seem to have any more to it than a simple joke, Red Cup, Solo, but the font that it's in does give us a little insight. The text looks very similar to what you would see in the title card for a Western film, and I think that this is very purposeful, since the film has been long rumored to have more of a Western style and tone, and this logo adds even more evidence to the western style. It certainly appears we're going to get Han Solo in the wild west of the Outer Rim, interacting with the scum and villainy of the galaxy, and I'm looking forward to seeing this style of film in the Star Wars galaxy. Now some more moves from the Han Solo film. Billy D. Williams, the man who played the infamous Lando Calrissian, gave us some details about the film, whether he knew he was giving it away or not, I'm not sure he is getting up there in age, but he did tell The Hollywood Reporter that, quote, this one is about how we established our friendship, Lando and Han, and the question of the Millennium Falcon, end quote. So it seems like these are some pretty big plot points from the movie, and these points have been rumored to be in the movie for a long time and certainly make sense that they would be included So this statement from Billy Dee certainly seems to validate some speculation and rumors spreading around the fandom. The story of how Lando lost the Falcon is long overdue to be told, and I'm looking forward to seeing how Lucasfilm will approach it. They released a photo of the entire cast crammed into the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, along with directors Phil Lord and Chris Miller, to celebrate the beginning of principal photography, which kicked off February 20th. Alden Ehrenreich, who will be playing Han in the film, can be seen rocking the Han Solo hairstyle. His hair has been dyed to match Han's color, and if you look at the picture, you can definitely see some similarities to Han's hair in the original trilogy. He's definitely starting to look much more like Han now, which is exciting. I'm hoping that maybe, just maybe, we can see a picture of him in the official Han get-up at Celebration, but I'm not going to get my hopes up for it. Hello, what have we here? A lot of toy news and announcements came out this month. A picture of the packaging for The Last Jedi merchandise was released, and the packaging features the trio of Poe, Rey, and Finn, Not a lot new it seems in terms of looks from Finn and Poe, it does look like Finn ended up getting a new resistance jacket and Poe looks to be sporting the same X-Wing pilot outfit that we see in The Force Awakens, but it looks like Rey will have a brand new hairstyle in the new movie and we get a glimpse of it from the front in this packaging photo. Her hair is down now and it looks a little bit like Qui-Gon Jinn's. It's slicked-backed and falls to about her shoulders in length from what I can tell from this picture. Her outfit is not very visible from this photo, but it looks like she'll be wearing a variation of the gray outfit she wears in the final moments of The Force Awakens. The Lost Jedi panel at Star Wars Celebration has been confirmed to be happening April 14th, so I'm 99% sure this is when we'll get to see a better look at our heroes, when the trailer is finally released. And speaking of celebration, an exclusive Black Series figure has been announced for the convention, and this will be the 6-inch Luke Skywalker X-Wing pilot figure, repackaged in the vintage card style to celebrate the 40th anniversary. This is not the only Black Series figure getting the vintage style treatment, as Hasbro has also announced that it will be releasing the original 12-back figures all in 6-inch Black Series style with the vintage style packaging, even featuring the original Kenner logo. They will be repackaging all of the figures that have already been released, except for the Jawa and Death Squad commanders that have not been made yet, and these will be completely new figures. This is great news for the newer collectors like me who missed out on figures like R2 and Han, and aren't looking to pay crazy prices for them. I think these figures are a great way for collectors to celebrate the 40th anniversary, and they look really great. Once again, Hasbro has found a way to take all my money, but I am not complaining. According to Hasbro, we should see these figures starting to hit shelves in April. Force Friday 2 has officially been announced for September 1st. It looks like they're going to revert back to the earlier date they used for The Force Awakens, Force Friday, rather than use the later September 30th date they used for Rogue One. I'm hoping this Force Friday will be more of an event than the Rogue Friday we had last year, and I think it will be since this Force Friday has already been announced more than a few months in advance. It would make sense to have these larger events more geared towards the saga films, since depending on the spin-off film being made, the opportunity to make toys for the film will be different. I don't think they'll have a problem with the Han Solo film necessarily, but if they decide to do... Something like an old Republic Yoda movie, there may be a little less of a demand from the mainstream audience. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. Issue 1 of the Darth Maul comic book was released February 1st, and it was a great start to the series. The issue opens with Maul hunting a pack of Raftars, the strange extremely dangerous tentacle creatures introduced in The Force Awakens. As to why Maul is voluntarily going up against these deadly monsters, well, he's bloodthirsty. Sidious has told him that soon he'll be starting with his plan, but Maul has become extremely impatient. So, he hunts down the most dangerous creatures in the galaxy to keep his skills sharp and quench his bloodlust. There's a small group that Maul hires to bring the Rathtars to him, and they all end up getting killed. The only thing left by one of them is a shoe, which is a reference to The Force Awakens, where one of the Rathtars that eats a Kanji Club gang member burps out their shoe. Not my favorite part of the movie, necessarily. Maul then meets with Palpatine on Coruscant in what looks to be the same factory area where he meets with Dooku in Attack of the Clones, and Palpatine, gives him a job to clear out a group of pirates that have taken members of the Trade Federation hostage, so Maul goes to wipe them out. One of the pirates begs for mercy and tells Maul that the boss of the Xrexis cartel has captured a Jedi Padawan and is auctioning them off, thinking that Maul is a Jedi because of his lightsaber and he wants to save his comrade. This captures Maul's attention since he is eager to test his skills against the Jedi, And the book ends with Maul on his way to this auction, so it seems like the story will be going in this direction. It seems pretty self-contained, and it's not as large a scale as I would have liked, but it still should be a fun story, and getting some more insight about Maul's motivations is definitely something I am looking forward to. The first issue does a good job of getting inside Maul's head, and it really shows just how much the young Sith craves a fight, especially against a Jedi. He's obsessed with this hatred of them, and so when he is offered the opportunity, he gets in the end of the issue, he's guaranteed to pursue it. What Maul really wants is a chance to prove himself to his master and to himself and when he gets his chance in the Phantom Menace, he is defeated, embarrassed, and left with next to nothing. This issue adds more weight and legitimacy as to how he was able to survive being cut in half by Obi-Wan, and why he is so angry that his hate is able to literally keep him alive. It helps explain why his hatred is so deep for Obi-Wan, and why he is so obsessed with revenge. Overall, it seems like the series is going to be pretty small in scale, but I did enjoy the first book, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing Cad Bane interact with Maul, which is coming up in the later issues. The Force is strong in my family. Battlefront 2, the sequel to the 2015 multiplayer game, has been confirmed to feature a story mode and will reportedly contain more characters and multiple eras to play in. The CEO of EA, the company that develops these games, has said that the game will be quote, bigger than the first installment. I'm interested to see when the story mode will take place, but I'm guessing it will be in the original trilogy just because they've been putting almost everything in this era lately. The story mode will be considered canon, so hopefully they take time putting together a good story that's entertaining to play through. EA has definitely taken fan criticism into consideration with this new game, and this is certainly good news. The 2015 Battlefront was a really beautiful looking game, but the lack of content really made it boring after a while. So hopefully Battlefront 2 can fix this with the story mode and the multiple time periods that will be playable. The game was also confirmed to be releasing a holiday season of this year, so the wait shouldn't be too long, and we should be receiving some trailers and some more information very soon, perhaps at Celebration. I just assumed I The Last Jedi is plural, meaning the title is referencing more than one Jedi. This news came out after the teaser poster for the film was released in a couple different languages, and in these languages, the title is translated in a plural conjugation, confirming the nature of this name. This sheds a little bit of light on this super ambiguous title, but it's really not that earth-shattering. The Lost Jedi is probably just referencing Luke and Rey, but who knows, it could be that Luke's training a whole new group of Jedi, It's really early to start speculating, as we've seen next to nothing from the movie, but my bet is that the title is actually pretty simple, and it is just Luke and Rey. I want to go home and rethink my life. I really enjoyed both of the episodes of Rebels that premiered this month. The show is really going in a great direction, in my opinion. In Legacy of Mandalore, Sabine returns to Cronest, the home planet of her family and Clan Wren, with Kanan, Ezra, and Fedrao, hoping to bring Clan Wren into the fight against the Empire. Their ship is shot down by the Mandos, and they realize really quickly that this is going to be more difficult than they thought it would be. They are then met by the Mandalorians, led by Sabine's brother, Tristan Wren, who agrees to take them to Sabine's mom, Ursa Wren. Sabine has a conversation with her mom where Ursa reveals to her how hard it's been on Clan Ren after Sabine left, and how the other clans have sought to destroy them, and they believe that Sabine is a traitor. Tristan had to become an Imperial Super Commando and serve Gar Saxon, commander of these super commandos, to try to prove their loyalty. We also found out in the episode that Sabine's father is locked away on Mandalore, which is one of the reasons she makes the decision she does in the end of the episode. Sabine and Tristan have an emotional conversation while training, which is a super Mandalorian thing to do. Then Ursa is contacted by Gar Saxon himself, and she tells him that Sabine and the Jedi are both there and that she'll trade the Jedi for her daughter's safety. When Saxon arrives, Fen'Rao, who's been monitoring the stronghold from a distance, jumps in and starts a thrilling fight with the super commandos. Sabine then shows down with Saxon in combat, Saxon with the darksaber, which he got from Ursa, and Sabine wielding Ezra's saber. I think it's really interesting how Sabine, in a very short amount of time, has become pretty good with the lightsaber. And this is one of the few instances in all of Star Wars that we see a non-Force-sensitive, as far as we know, wielding an actual lightsaber. Sabine eventually defeats Saxon, but when she turns her back on him and walks away, he attempts to shoot her in the back when, in a super tense scene... Ursa kills him first in a don't touch my daughter turn of events. The tension in this scene was great and it was a very good way to redeem Ursa and show her as the good guy after a pretty cold start at the beginning of the episode. Then Sabine makes her big decision to stay with her family to free her father and I kind of expected Sabine to leave and fight with the Mandalorians. At some point, for a while now, and the way they set it up didn't really surprise me. I thought the fight that went down was really great, and I loved seeing the state of the Mandalorians after the Rise of the Empire, and the interactions with Sabine's family. I'm hoping the show will come back to the Mandos occasionally for an episode or two. And I definitely think that they will join the fight with the Rebels eventually. Another little thing I wanted to point out is that Tristan refers to the Super Commandos as the Emperor's Hand, which goes back to legends where the Emperor's Hand were a group of Force Sensitives Palpatine used to kill enemies similar to the Inquisitors, but the most infamous member of the Emperor's Hand was Mara Jade. I'm sure the story group name-dropped the Emperor's Hand for a reason, possibly to reference Mara Jade, and this could mean that she might have some involvement, but I don't think that the story group is ready to bring her back yet, if ever, even though she is a major fan-favorite character. The next episode, Through Imperial Eyes, was a really, really solid episode as well, and one of the best in Season 3 in my opinion. It starts off with a first person POV from Callus, who wakes up and is in his uniform complete with armor, which is the unfortunate side effect of having a low budget. The first person intro was pretty cool to me though, and it certainly was something completely unique that we haven't seen before. Ezra gets captured on purpose to let Kalos know that the Empire may be on him, and to get him out of there, but the plan heads south, as always, after Thrawn summons all the Imperials to search for the traitor. And for the first time in all of Star Wars, we finally get to see what the code cylinders do. Almost every Imperial in Star Wars has them, and we've never seen them actually used until this episode where they're used for identification and as a means to activate certain things such as the cell block. On their way to being evaluated, they stumble upon Thrawn, who's training in combat against some droids, which was an awkward scene and seemed a little forced. Kallus speaks with Admiral Yularen, who's back from the Clone Wars and I believe is voiced by the same person. He is no longer an Admiral, but rather an ISB, Imperial Security Bureau Colonel, which is a pretty big change in occupation. He's wearing the same uniform we see him wear in the Death Star scene in A New Hope. Kallus seems to convince Yularen that he's not the traitor and Callus was one of Yularen's best students in the Imperial Academy we learn. In an attempt to frame List as being the traitor, Kallus exchanges their code cylinders and uses List to get Ezra from the cell block. Then they go to Thrawn's office to try to erase Chopper Base from the map that Thrawn has. They succeed, but just barely manage to hide before Thrawn returns. Kallus manages to sneak out and reprogram Thrawn's training droids to attack in an incredibly short amount of time, and they're able to escape while Thrawn's preoccupied fighting off these droids. I think Thrawn needs to do a little bit more training in blaster combat than hand-to-hand combat because he missed, like, five times at very close range, but I guess he doesn't really need to use a blaster much, but then again, he doesn't need to use hand-to-hand combat much, so... I don't really like the idea of Thron's training, but I guess he thinks that he has to have a strong mind and a strong body to be able to lead. And I guess it is cooler knowing that he can beat you up with his hands and his mind. Then at the end, Kalos decides not to escape with the gang because he is convinced that he's framed list and is in a good spot. And it certainly looks like he is until we come to the devastating irony when Thrawn gets his chance to shine with Ularen and he realizes it's Kallus just by the art on Ezra's helmet which he wore when he was captured. Thrawn's pure genius just shines out at the end of this episode more than any other and the sinister look he gives at the end of the episode and the line Agent Fulcrum will prove far more useful to the Empire than Callus ever was with the haunting organ in the background, gave me goosebumps and was some amazing foreshadowing. Rebels Recon identified a couple little easter eggs around Thrawn's office, and I really liked these little details. One was Gree's Phase 2 clone helmet, which must have been taken from the Battle of Kashyyyk. I'm not sure if it holds any significance to the plot, or if it's just a little inside nod to the fans, but it would be neat if it had a connection to Thrawn somehow. We also see an Abenito head bust, which is Eloastes' species from The Force Awakens, and another object that seems to be random. And the most prominent easter egg was the Ralph McQuarrie concept art that inspired Lothal's planet design, which can be seen pretty prominently throughout the episode. This is once again an example of the huge Macquarie fan club that is the Animators of Rebels, but with all the work he did for Star Wars, I don't blame them, and I thought the painting fit well. This cat and mouse game of an episode was phenomenal, thrilling, nerve wracking and really showed just how incredible Thrawn is. I can't wait to see Kalos' fate in the upcoming episodes, and Thrawn's master plan for him moving forward. I fear nothing, for all is as the Force wills it. The Art of Rogue One is a really great book, especially if you're a big fan of concept art and you like to see the process of how they design movies. I know personally I'm a huge fan of getting the -the behind-the-scenes looks, and I really love to see how the movies I love become a reality. The book mostly features a bunch of concept art from each part of the film, broken up into planets, and it's very similar to the layout of the art of The Force Awakens, which came out around the time of TFA. In the book, it does provide a little insight about how Gareth approached design in the movie. He's a very visual director, and throughout the book, you can really see how much he stresses telling a story through design, which is one of the reasons Rogue One is such a beautiful movie. The book features a couple storyboards from the production which was really cool to see. The only thing I wish they would have included more of was the actual story and how it changed and progressed over time. There's obviously a lot there since we know about the extensive reshoots that went on. We only get a few bits and pieces in the beginning When the book addresses John Knoll's original pitch, this pitch actually had Krennic as a part of the Rogue One team, but he was an Imperial spy and was reporting back to the Imperial Security Bureau. Another character named Senna was originally going to be part of the team as well, and his character design eventually went to Moroff from Saw's rebel group. Overall, I would recommend this book to those of you who enjoy art, but in terms of written content, it's a little light, but all the amazing visuals you get to see really make up for it. There's not that much to say about it considering it is primarily images, but it's definitely worth checking out, or at least flipping through. Roger, roger. And that's it for this month's episode. It is a shorter one, unfortunately I have been extremely busy between school and baseball, but I will have a show up relatively soon after I complete the new book, Aftermath Empire, and I'm planning on doing a little microcast review within the next couple weeks. Thank you so much for listening this month. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a 5-star review. It really helps, and the first 25 will be entered into a raffle to win the opening night Rogue One IMAX poster. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at transmissionsfromstairspod, no underscores, And you can email the show at transmissionsfromscariffpod at gmail.com, no spaces or underscores. I'll try to answer any Star Wars questions or comments you may have on the show. Thanks again for listening, and may the Force be with you. This part is